Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's that still. One Charlie Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic as always. This week we're going to call this show Plain Sense. We uh, stumbled across a handbook from the FAA that we neither one was aware of, and I got a lot of information out of it, and we're going to share some of that stuff, summarize maybe the document, point y'all all towards it, encourage you to read it. You'll learn a bunch. The handbook from the FAA is called Plain Sense, and we're going to get to that in just one minute. Before we do, I think Wally wants to share some recent learnings from some multi-engine students and check rides take it away wally yeah i i've uh found myself doing a whole bunch of multi-engine check rides here lately and i've actually done some instructing in multi-engine airplanes which has been a lot of fun um, because because i actually get to talk in my check rides but anyway uh i I just want to give a lot of you a little bit of history and those of you who are kind of new to flying may not be aware of some of this but um, back in the day to get a commercial pilot certificate certificate you needed 10 hours of complex flight time uh, you needed 10 hours in an airplane that had uh, a controllable pitch propeller a retractable landing gear and flaps now through most of our training, we're all used to using flaps, so that that's kind of not a big deal. But the, the two really big things were the gear and the controllable pitch propeller. And that had been the rule forever, and you actually were required to take at least a part of your multi-engine check ride in a complex airplane. When I came up through the ranks of getting my ratings back in the 80s, the, the norm in Monroe, Louisiana, we had three different flight schools and all of the flight schools did it the same way you would go take your commercial check ride in your uh, 150 or 152 or whatever airplane it was you would do the bulk of it in that airplane but you would uh, stop the check while you you'd come in and land and you'd go get in a complex airplane and you had to demonstrate competent competency in a complex airplane so you actually use two check two airplanes for the check ride when I started doing uh, check rides down here in Houston, that really wasn't the the norm in Houston. Most people would do their entire uh, commercial check ride in a complex airplane. I think I earlier I may have said a multi-engine check ride, but I'm talking about a commercial single-engine check ride. Most people would have done their commercial single-engine check ride in either the the two most popular airplanes uh, at the time were either Cessna 172 RGs or um, Piper Arrows. And, uh, you know, so you would go out and you would do your Lazy 8s or your Shondells, your Steep Spirals, your your Accelerated Stall. You'd do all those maneuvers in a complex airplane. And so by the time you got the check ride, you're pretty pretty competent, pretty confident in a complex airplane. Well, about, I don't know the exact date, but about five, six, seven years ago, 
there was a check ride taking place down at in Florida at a very popular um, university flight program down there, and uh, the wing of an arrow actually came off, and it killed the examiner and it killed the applicant. And the FAA acted very very quickly. Um, immediately, an AD came out to check the wing spars on a whole bunch of Piper airplanes for corrosion, but they did something else. They and 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 I believe that this was in the works before this happened. I and this is just my speculation. I believe a a pretty popular airplane manufacturer that does not have a retractable gear uh, was was probably behind some of this. Uh, they were working on coming up with a new um, aircraft uh, designation, if you will, and it was called Technically Advanced Airplanes. And and they said, they, they came out with a new rule, because what was happening is the majority of these complex airplanes that people were training in were, were pretty old. And uh, so the FAA's... Uh, fix for this was they came out and they said okay you don't have to have 10 hours in a complex airplane anymore you can have 10 hours in a technically advanced airplane and of course the the def the technically advanced airplane I don't have the definition right here in front of me but it has to have some sort of a multifunction display it has to have an autopilot and has to have a GPS so we could take a 1950 Cessna 172 and configure it that way and make that airplane a technically advanced airplane. So now we have commercial applicants coming in and doing their check ride and, and as we audit their logbooks, yeah, we look over there and there's 10 hours of technically advanced air of technically advanced time, maybe in a 172, maybe in a, an archer, whatever. But they don't have that complex time. So now they come to their multi-engine training, and they're going to start training in a multi-engine airplane. And uh, I really, I don't know of any multi-engine airplanes that that do not have a retractable landing gear. Some of them do not have the controllable pitch propeller, um, but those are kind of outliers. The vast majority of, of uh, well, I, I think every multi-engine checkride I've given in my time as a DPE has been in a complex airplane. Um, but we get people there that are now learning multi-engine time, multi-engine flying, and they're not really comfortable with complex time. So it's a double whammy. So, you know, back in my day, I, by the time I got to a multi-engine airplane, I was used to moving the props around. I was used to putting that gear up and down and today, not so much. So what I'm trying to say is, if your flight school has a complex airplane available, do yourself a favor and get in that complex airplane before you go and get a multi-engine rating. And I know some flight schools don't have them available, but if there is a complex airplane, I think moving that gear and getting used to those propellers is just worth its weight in gold. And, and I think this would re lower the stress level a little bit in your multi-engine training. So, yeah, the one thing yeah. that I remember 
really remember when I, I I don't know how many hours I have in an arrow, but quite a bit. And I have some in the Cessna RG as well. And I did my 10 complex. I think I was right around that transitional time. And I flew with a flight school that maybe only had one technically advanced airplane. It was my flight school, but they didn't have a lot of TAA aircraft at the time. I think I did all 10 plus in my, in the RG. And then, um, probably had another half dozen in an arrow but you really start learning about drag and and what those what happens to an aircraft when you stick those gear out into the into that wind and it does it, it flies very different right so when you're it all comes to light you know and i i've heard a couple of uh actually this week we had a an electrical issue uh on a long flight austin to houston and they diverted and and landed and they actually had an alternator going out on them. Uh, luckily, they caught it. Uh, I'm not sure if they caught it or if the uh, lack of radio made them catch it. But um, in an arrow, it's not necessarily an emergency because the arrow the arrow gear system is going to work with or without the electricity. It's gonna it's gonna drop. But I guarantee you, they were thinking about it because they, that's part of the training that you're doing in that complex aircraft. In our twin. You need the electric to get the gear started down, and uh, that would be a problem, right? So, right. I think I think you're just a better pilot. I think you're you're uh, more aware of what's going on when you have that complex time and you fly something with that gear gear lever in it for sure. You know, if if you're a uh, a baseball player, you know you probably a professional baseball player. You know, you start out in rookie ball, and then you move up to I don't know what the, the different classes are. I don't know if there's an A ball, but I know there's a double A and there's triple A. And then you make it to the big leagues. Um, you know, they, most of the time they don't draft you out of high school and the next day you're you're starting center field in Yankee Stadium. You know, there's a progression. And so to go from a 172 to a twin-engine complex airplane, is a big jump. So if we can if we can you know put something in the middle and get some time in a um you know a complex airplane whether whether it be a and I, and I keep coming back to Arrow that seems to be the kind of the the popular airplane but they are getting fewer and 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 you know they're they're getting harder and harder to find. Um there aren't, aren't as many around because of the advent of the technically advanced airplane. So what I, I would encourage, if, if you're an instructor or you're a student at a flight school, you're working on your instrument rating, you got to get a whole bunch of instrument time. If your flight school has a complex airplane, and especially if the avionics are similar uh, to what you're used to flying, tell your instructor, hey, let's do a couple of flights in this complex airplane and and uh, you know, fly some approaches where I have to worry about putting a gear down, uh, where I need to worry about retracting the gear after we we miss the approach, and um, I I think it will make you a better pilot. Yeah, and I would just encourage the flight instructors out there if you if your school has one, you know, nudge your students into it. It might not be a requirement. It might cost ten dollars more an hour, but encourage them on the value of it and then at the same time you continue to get smarter and better yourself as you're flying uh that aircraft as well all right let's jump into the uh, handbook that we're talking about today so uh i was doing some research on something 
and came across this handbook. I had never heard of it. No one had ever pointed me towards it. I asked Wally if he had heard of it. He had never heard of it. And I think we're pretty pretty enthralled aviators. I think we've seen a lot and heard a lot. I was shocked. How how shocked were you when I shared this book with you the other day? I I I was very shocked. I I mean the first page I went, "Wow. There's some really good stuff on here." Yeah, it's so it's such a good book and I'm disappointed I never heard of it cuz there's so much I've always wanted to know and I get asked about buying an airplane a lot. And uh, this is the first thing I'm going to send people for sure. But the book is called Plain Sense, and it really is intended to be a book that's going to teach you about the ownership of an air, acquiring an airplane, owning an airplane, uh, kind of some of the rules and regulations around all that stuff. It's really broken into three sections, or the book is, talks about three sections, things that are for all general aviation readers. It's really like owner responsibilities and FAA publications and records, FAA contact information, and then regulatory guidance. There's a section or a bunch of chapters that fit into the acquisition, registration, and ownership. And I guess in the training world, we probably talk about the the uh, acronyms that will help us pass a written exam or maybe an oral portion of a check ride. But this is the good stuff, right? It's really what has to be there. Um, buying the aircraft, airworthiness certificate, the registration, special flight permits, and then light sport aircraft are in that grouping. And um, then there's a section all about maintenance. So really maintenance in general, the records that are required, airworthiness directives, and then the service difficulty program. The day deep component seems like such a ghost to a lot of students when I talk to them while they like, where would I go? How do I figure out ADs? How do I possibly know what's required for this aircraft? And uh, if your flight school doesn't do a good job with that stuff, man, the airworthiness directive chapter is a very good read. Very simple, I'll call it. It's not quite as bad as reading the far aim, but uh, really, really good stuff in this handbook for sure. What did you get out of it or what did you take away right off the top, uh, Wally? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, page one, um, I – Here's what I got, you know, the page one, it says aircraft owner responsibilities. And the first um, point is documentation. And, uh, you know, every check ride, every commercial and every um, private check ride I do, I ask the applicant, tell me what documents are required to be on board the airplane. And what I tell them before the before we start is that this oral that we're about to do this oral examination is within the context of our flight today and uh, we on on our flight we do not cross any borders outside the united states so it is a a uh, you know a domestic flight if you will okay so they go through and they uh, I'm not sure anybody has ever really missed this, but they'll say we have to have an airworthiness certificate. We have to have a registration certificate. And this is where some people will tell me about the second R and some people won't. Well, within the context of our flight, we're not going international, so they'd be perfectly fine to just jump into operating limitations and weight and balance documents. And I'll say that's great. Okay, and then we talk about... 
uh, expiration of, of those documents and so forth. But I'd say a good 60% of them tell me that if we were going international, we need a radio license. Um, it's called a radio station license. We don't think of the airplane as a station, but it technically is. And so I say, well, since you brought it up, I says, tell me about that radio license. And it's a blind, blind look. And uh, they may say, well, can I look it up? And I say, sure, this is an open book, open book test. So they, they try to look it up. And what they end up realizing it that they can't find anything in the FARs about it. Well, the radio license isn't an, it's not an FAA requirement. It's an FCC requirement, Federal Communications um, Commission. And uh, that's something that we're just, I mean, we, we've just learned, well, we got to have a radio license. And then I'll ask them, I'll say, well, well, what radios need to be on that radio license? And and you can see the, the you know, the, they, they kind of are uncomfortable, but it we kind of use it, um, you know, as a as an aha moment of, oh boy, yeah, there's more to this. It's, it's not all just FAA stuff. We're dealing with lots of lettered government agencies, um, FAA, possibly the FCC, if we're going to go, um, outside the U S and, um, uh, you know, of course the, the answer to the question is the radios that need to be listed on that radio license are the radios that transmit. And typically, we have four radios in an airplane that transmit on a, a typical uh, single-engine training airplane. We have the two comms, COM 1 and 2. We usually have two, maybe only have one. But we also have a transponder. That's a radio, and it transmits. And we also have an ELT, which is a radio that transmits. So those are the radios that need to be on that license. That's in this book. Um you know, it's uh, uh, it's it's right here on page one, and I, I was I kind of smiled when I saw that because I I had this um, discussion on quite a few check rides. Yeah, it it again, it's packed with a bunch of information. One of the things that I get asked about a lot, or I hear conversations about, because it is kind of a it's I don't know a ghostly conversation is special flight permits. Um, used to be called ferry permits. Uh, I think a lot of people still refer to them as ferry permits, but it's like anything else. If you don't ever do one, you probably don't understand them and they're kind of, uh, secretive to you. And as a fly school owner with planes that have broken down at places or had bird strikes with broken windshields or other things, I've, I've had the luxury of doing a number of special flight permits, and they're really easy to do if you know what to do. And in this book, there's chapter five is about special flight permits. And just to break it down and tell everyone just how simple it is, this chapter has two pages in it. And then the the other two pages, there's four pages total, I guess, two written pages. There's an example of a blank flight permit and a completed flight permit where they actually Fill it up, fill out the permit, and show you what all you have to put in the permit. So, um, I, I've probably filed a half dozen of these things to get planes back where they needed to be, um, in a condition that probably wasn't technically airworthy, and the FAA had to prove their flight. And it's not, a, it's pretty big, not a big deal at all. 
you normally have a window of time where you're allowed to fly it. Uh, and all those planes have been returned without incident. But something that seems so daunting or big and scary, maybe like a special flight permit is broke down in this book into four simple pages with examples that I really think pilots should know. Um, we should all be aware of how these things work for sure. Yeah. And, and that, that's something else that we, uh, that I talk about on, again, my private and commercial check rides is a special flight permit. I give them a, a scenario where we've flown the airplane out of town and uh, the annual expires the end of this month. And uh, we uh, get stuck by weather or sickness or whatever, and it's the first of next month and we want to fly back, what are what are our options? And, you know, usually the first thing the, that the applicant says, well, we can have the annual done out of state. Well, that, that's true. You could. That's absolutely an option. But um, the other one is uh, a special flight permit or requesting a special flight permit. Yeah. How long do most annuals take with a mechanic that you don't have a relationship with? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Month, yeah. Two, yeah. three weeks, month? Though. Absolutely. Uh, again, back to earlier, I get asked about buying an aircraft a lot. People have questions. You know, we might have all bought a car, but, but very few of us have bought an airplane. Um, again, chapter two has five pages about buying an aircraft, and it really is where to look. Factors that affect the value, um, the aircraft records, the title, the documents that you need to see. It's really informative. And I, I don't know how many times I've had the conversation uh, going through the process of buying an aircraft. But uh, really good, really good chapter. If you're thinking about buying an aircraft, uh, you can understand kind of the starting process and really what you would expect or should be expecting as you go through that purchasing process. Um, yeah. And, and, and the book, I mean, it's, uh, I kudos to whoever wrote this or, or, um, you know, the, the people that wrote it because it, it is, and, and I don't say this, uh, to be, um, disrespectful. It is dummy down. I mean, it, it it's pretty simple. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking at this, I'm on the maintenance section and, uh, there's, there's a two paragraph, a uh, little section about hundred-hour inspections, two paragraphs. I mean that that even a, a slow reader that's that's going to take you less than two minutes, and uh, it's some really really informative information. Yeah, going back to those check ride acronyms and stuff. Um, there's one we always talk about as as required inspections, right? That's Aviate. Um, is right. the acronym and it this the chapter on maintenance really is good and i i spend a lot of money every year on maintenance and i keep up with my log books and maintenance records and um the fa will be doing their surveillance soon on our flight school but it the the pedostatic and the altimeter and the transponder inspections that have to be done again if you unless you do them or you pay someone to do them you kind of just know they occur and that you the things tested, but you really don't know what's occurring or what happens. Uh, again, interesting in this book talks about those at a little bit more detail and would make you uh, more familiar with what's actually going on on those aircraft that you're flying. Um, it's just not about the 
the actual uh, it's done every two years kind of thing. Just really informative stuff. Yeah. Um, what 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 other handbooks are out there? Let's talk about the whole kitty. You know, we 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 found this one. Are there other ones we weren't aware of, Wally, that we should share with our listeners and maybe do future shows on? There there is a whole whole gamut of of FAA publications. Um, you know, I'm I'm out of town right now on a layover, and uh, on my to do list today is to. Um, I just I re- renewed my CFI and uh, it's it my expiration date is the end of this month, 2025. I have the temporary certificate, but I haven't received my uh, permanent certificate. Uh, there used to be on the FAA website, uh, on the the opening the the home page, uh, it would say we're currently processing certificate permanent certificates for temporaries that were issued on such and such a date. Um, That is, they've moved that. It's somewhere else. I know it's somewhere on their website. So on my to-do list is to go on the FAA website and find out uh, where that information is. But on the FAA website is just a crazy amount of free downloadable publications. I mean, this book, Plain Sense, it's available for sale. Uh, people have taken the time to print it, and they're selling it for a reasonable price. But it's uh, the one I have is right here on my iPad. I'm, I'm paging through it right now as as I talk, and it's free. I, I shouldn't say free. It's it's your tax dollars at oh, yeah, work. Exactly. So I pay for it. So yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, but oh my gosh, there's so many. There's so many. You you were telling me about a a risk management book. Yeah, it's a Miss Risk Management Handbook. It was updated in 2022. You know, people talk about risk and wanting to learn more about how to analyze that risk and put it into their practice. And we probably have the I'm safe and pay checklist uh, in a in a in something on our kneeboard or in our iPad. But the the Risk Management Handbook is a real book, very similar to the Pilot Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge solely focused on risk, how to build risk programs into your flight training, into your into your flight programs if you do own a flight school or something similar. Uh, again, a wealth of information that you can buy the print version, but all these are out there. The Aviation Weather Handbook, something that I just don't think, I think we buy a lot of third-party stuff, right? Um, and I don't want to yeah. take away from those books. They probably are very good books. But the FAA paid a lot of money to the employees of the FAA with your tax dollars to write all these handbooks and you should go out and uh, explore the aviation handbooks and manuals on the FAA website. It will be worth your time. And if nothing else, download some of the copies and put them on your iPad. So you have that reference material, whether you ever become an instructor or not, you'll you'll probably want to look back and search through those PDFs uh, in the future. If nothing else, the next time something happens and you need a special flight permit, You'll have plain sense at your fingertips, be able to look at chapter five and be able to understand what you need to do to make sure that you file, file that paperwork accordingly. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously you have to have a, a program or an app on your, your iPad, if you're going to use it on your iPad to read these. And, and most of you probably already have it. You may not even know about it, but ForeFlight, for those of you who use ForeFlight, um, there's, there's a, 
there's a tab on the bottom called Documents, and you can download these things and just keep them right there in ForeFlight. I mean, I've got um, binders called Books, FAA Documents, um, uh, all kinds of things. So all this is available um, through that that way of getting to it rather than just um, going to the FAA website. But, um, uh, man, there's just there's so much so much information here. Yes, I would encourage everyone to go out and uh, get the book Plain Sense. Uh, whether you want to buy a plane or not, you, there's a lot of information in that book for you. Read it, study it, check out the other manuals and handbooks uh, on the FA website or in ForeFlight. And as always, fly safely and stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.